You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Kathleen McLean. I coordinate public programs here at the Art Gallery of Ontario, and I'm really glad so many of you are able to join us tonight. Um, for our discussion of art and our relationship with the natural environment generally, and more specifically, the endangerment and extinction of North American birds. Tonight's talk is both an extension of Sarah Angelucci's residency here at the Art Gallery of Ontario and of some of the ideas in her recent work. So we're very grateful to Sarah for having the ideas and um, convincing this panel to come together for tonight. I think we're in for a treat. I'm going to introduce the panel They'll take turns up here and afterwards be on stage for um, questions from you. Sarah Angelucci is a Toronto-based visual artist who works primarily with photography, video, and audio. She explores vernacular archival materials such as her movies, snapshots, and vintage portraits and their limited ability to convey the exact sense of a lived experience. Angelucci seeks to reposition these source images in the present, shedding light on their broader context and histories outside of the frame. We're also going to hear from Bridget Stutchbury, who is a professor in the Department of Biology at York University in Toronto. Since the 1980s, she's studied migratory songbirds to understand their behavior, ecology, and conservation. Her current research focuses on studying the incredible migration journeys of songbirds to help halt the severe declines in many species. Bridget serves on the board of Wildlife Preservation Canada and is author of both Silence of the Songbirds and The Bird Detector. Following Bridget will be Mark Peck, who is the collection manager in ornithology in the Department of Natural History at the Royal Ontario Museum, where he has worked since 1983. He's worked on museum exhibits and programs and conducted field research in South America, New Jersey, and the Hudson Bay lowlands of Northern Ontario. Peck is co-coordinator of the Ontario Nest Records Scheme, the ROM liaison for the Ontario Birds Records Committee, and the program director for the Toronto Ornitholo Ornithological Club. He has authored or co-authored numerous scientific and popular articles on birds and hundreds of his photos of birds have been published in books, magazines, and on websites. Rounding out the panel is Matthew Brower, who is a lecturer in museum studies in the Faculty of Information at the University of Toronto. Matthew writes on issues in animal studies, the history and theory of photography, and contemporary art. He's curated exhibitions of historical and contemporary art, including the Gival, Nothing is Missing, The Brothel Without Walls, Susie Lake, Political Poetics, and Collective Identity, Occupied Spaces. He's also the author of Developing Animals, Wildlife and Early American Photography. And I believe we're going to see images from that book tonight, and they're amazing. So starting us off tonight is um, our moderator, Andrew Hunter, who is also the AGO's Frederick S. Eaton Curator of Canadian Art. Andrew's a curator, artist, writer, and educator, and before he joined us in May of 2013, he held many curatorial positions, including roles at the Vancouver Art Gallery, Art Gallery Hamilton, Kamloops, the McMichael, Charlottetown Confederation Center, basically everywhere, and he was also the co-founder and co-principal 
of Dodo Lab. So please join me in welcoming all of them in succession to the stage. Good evening. Nice to see so many people out uh, for this event. So my role uh, this evening will be to share with you a few short stories, uh, sad stories about some lost bird species, and, uh, and then hand the microphone over uh, to our panelists uh, to present, and then I'll be seated over here later on uh, to get some conversation going, and then I'll come out and, and do the, the kind of Merv Griffin work the floor with the microphone kind of thing. I just dated myself by saying Merv Griffin. I realize that. So, um, but first, before I start, I just want to say... Um, one of the things that's very important to us here at the AGO is that our, is our exhibition and art program uh, at the gallery be connected to broader issues in the world, uh, be connected with the things that matter to us all beyond just being interested in art. Uh, this panel and Sarah's residency is a big part of that uh, commitment in the program to expand the ideas that we engage with and talk about. And it's also an opportunity for us to connect with and partner with researchers and at institutions in the Toronto area, university and, and uh, uh, other museums and, uh, as well. So, um, so what I'm going to do is I've, uh, I have a real interest in birds, always have, and a particular interest in Audubon, his Birds of America, and the nine extinct birds, the birds that Audubon witnessed and documented who are no longer with, a, with us. So as sort of intros to each of the presentation, I'm, I'm just going to read a little short story about um, each of these dinosaurs. Putting my notebook down. Sorry, I'm back. I didn't get a drink of scotch or anything. Um, so I'm going to read you a little short story about, uh, and these, the birds I've chosen, there are four, and I'm, I'm moving through them uh, from the earliest extinction up to the most recent. There's no real direct connection always to what will follow, but um, in some cases there will be. We're, we're here to talk about birds. So the first one I want to speak about is the great auk, and, uh, which became extinct in 1844, around 1844. And uh, the first bird uh, that, that Audubon um, uh, produced an image of and wrote about uh, to become extinct and became extinct in his lifetime. The other, other birds were, were after he, he died. Uh, so the great auk, and here you see two of them. It was on the islet of Stack and Amern, St. Kilda, Scotland, in July 1844, that the last great auk, seen in the British Isles, was caught and killed. Three men from St. Kilda caught a single garfowl, noticing its little wings and the large white spot on its head. They tied it up and kept it alive for three days until a large storm arose, believing that the auk was a witch, and the cause of the storm, they then killed it by beating it with a stick. It is the only British bird made extinct in historic times. A person buried at the maritime archaic site at Port O'Shaugh in Newfoundland, dating to about 2000 BC, was found surrounded by more than 200 great auk beaks, which are believed to have been part of a suit made from their skins, with the heads left attached as decoration. Nearly half of the bird bones found in graves at this site were of the great auk, suggesting that it had cultural significance for the maritime archaic people. The extinct biotic of Newfoundland made pudding out of the auk's eggs. 
I'm very pleased to introduce Sarah Angelucci, who is going to begin this evening by speaking about her work, uh, her residency here with us, and her interest in birds. Thank you, Sarah. Hello, thanks everyone for being here. Thank you to the bird lovers and the art lovers and those who love both. Um, I'm very excited to be on a panel with uh, three, I guess, kind of he art heroes for me right now, Bridget Stutchbury, Mark Peck, and Matthew Brower, whose research, writing, and knowledge have been key in helping me to develop my recent work. And I want to extend a special gratitude to Mark Peck, who so generously opened the doors of the ROMS Ornithology Lab to me in the last couple of years and has let me photograph just about anything. And um, how lucky to find a curator who loves birds. That worked out really well. So thank you, Andrew, for inviting me to be an artist in residence here and to Paolo Poletto, who's been incredible to work with. I also wanted to show you what I'm wearing. I know you're thinking, did she get that at the Chanel Avian Boutique? But this is a preview of what um, the seven performers will be wearing at uh, the performance on February the 5th, and I'm hoping it's going to tempt you to come. And this is uh, the chestnut-colored longspur. It's, one, it's an North American endangered bird, and um, each of the capes is different, and it's actually a photographic print uh, that I designed. So that's um, one of the small things I've been doing here, amongst other things. So anyway, I want to talk tonight about two projects, a series of photographs called Aviary and uh, the Morning Chorus, which is a choral piece that I'm developing here at the AGO while I'm in residence. Um, I'm just going to skip to an image of the Aviary series, and I'm going to show these sort of intermittently throughout. Um, there isn't any one thing which made it clear to me that I should make these strange hybrid human-bird creatures. The project really grew out of a number of ideas coalescing over time, which included my collection and interest in found vernacular portrait photographs, all of which are anonymous, my ongoing interest in memory and notions of loss or impermanence, a theory of memory from ancient times which said to catch a particular bird was equated with capturing a bird in an aviary filled. Oh, pardon me, I'm going to go back. A theory of memory from ancient times which said to catch a particular memory was equated with capturing a bird in an aviary filled with birds. And an ongoing interest in interpreting photographs, placing them within a broader historical and cultural context outside of the frame of the image. Beginning with vernacular images, portrait images of the everyday, I began to think about all these people that I had collected whose, whose identities are lost to us. Susan Sontag and John Berger write about the vernacular, the lost photograph. In their discussions with each other, they say, unlike memory, photographs do not in themselves preserve meaning. They offer appearances. The private photograph, the portrait of a mother, a picture of a daughter, a group photo of one's team, is appreciated and read in context 
which is continuous with that form from which the camera removed it. So that meaning of the photograph remains as long as it is surrounded by its context from which it was taken. The photograph is a memento from a life being lived. But once the photograph has been severed from this context, it loses its meaning, and it really is a mere appearance. And here, I'd like to quote from artist Christian Boltanski, who said, they say that we die twice, once when we die, and a second time when no one recognizes our picture. So part of this project came out of a desire to rescue these photographs, or in a way to redeem their loss, and redeem them for another purpose. As John Berger has said, memory implies a certain act of redemption. What is remembered has been saved from nothingness. What is forgotten has been abandoned. To talk about this another way, I came to turning to these, por these portraits into birds. Why I did this, I needed to look further into the 19th century and share some things about that period that photographs like this, these carte de visites, were taken. The carte de visite was the most popular form of photography of this period. I liken it to the Facebook of its day. Through this technique, images could be produced more cheaply in larger quantities, and trading and collecting them became hugely popular and spread worldwide. Because they were a standard size, photo albums were created for them, and it was all the craze to trade them among family and friends and keep them in albums. And you could also buy pictures of celebrities. When I started to research the 19th century, more things congealed in this series. There were more congruences than I had ever imagined. And these hybrid creatures began to make more sense as I considered them within the relationships and interests the Victorians had with birds. The 19th century, the Victorian area, was the period that spawned the revolutionary technology of photography itself. It produced the most radical shift in industrial production and a voracious interest in natural history and collecting of specimens of all kinds arose in this time period, including birds. One has to put in context that, it, that at its height, the British Empire was the largest empire in history, encompassing almost one quarter of the Earth's total land area and one-fifth of the world's population at the time. At the peak of its power, the phrase, the empire on which the sun never sets was often used to describe it because its expanse across the globe meant that the sun was always shining on at least one of its territories. The interest in natural history grew exponentially in this period, and it was fueled by explorers and shipping who could draw from this vast expanse of its territories around the world to collect specimens. To give you an idea of the scope of wild animal trade at this period, by 1895, there were 118 wild animal dealers in London alone. Charles Jamrock was one of the preeminent wild animal dealers in London. With a network of agents around the world, he, he stocked all manner of exotic animals, including elephants, tigers, lions, bears, tapirs, armadillos, 
Contemporary accounts of his premises speak of thousands of parrots and exotic birds packed so tightly in cages that they couldn't move. Birds were amongst the most sought after and loved creature in this time, kept in home aviaries, but also used in women's clothing. And although this wasn't new, it was now that feathers and exotic birds as pets were more affordable and, and growing, uh, available to a middle and upper classes who desired them for all kinds of, of things, pets, clothing, design, everything. In 1862, ships with between 20 and 30,000 birds on board were regularly leaving Adelaide for London. And collecting did not happen just in museums, which were also born in the 19th century. This happened also in the home. It was all the rage to fill your Victorian parlor with any kind of specimen you could. And this type of bird vitrine was very common in a, a very common thing in a Victorian home. And it was also seen as a fitting hobby for young ladies to take up taxidermy. Exotic specimens were all the rage, as one article on the BBC Newswire tells us. If you were born in rural England in 1837 and never traveled more than a few miles from home, you would have been surprisingly likely to see a hippopotamus before you died. Oops. If you begin to work with birds, it seemed only natural that you would want to explore their sounds, which is one of their most beautiful qualities. So when Andrew asked me what I might like to do here while in residence, I said that I wanted to develop an audio work based on the sound of endangered North American songbirds. But I didn't want to use recorded sounds. I wanted to do something different. And in developing a morning chorus, and it's important that you know it's spelled M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, my research, my research has grown to contemplating our connection and disconnection with nature. And one of the issues that arises is the notion of nature versus culture, or that humans are exceptional because we have culture. Dr. Hollis Taylor, a scientist in Sydney asks, is music an exclusively human domain? As a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Technology in Sydney, her work straddles the fields of zoo musicology, ornithology, and composition. While I can't share the whole article with you, Dr. Taylor asserts that one of the things endangering the planet is the disconnect we feel from nature. And one of the ways we do this as humans is to see ourselves as exceptional. Birdsong, this is a quote from Dr. Taylor's article, birdsong is functional, human music is functional, but each is more than the rules and functions behind it. Function does not suffice as the sole explanatory tool. Neither machines nor scientists can create a great melody or the ambiguity that is a hallmark of great works and great performances of music. But I believe that some songbirds can, just as some, but not all humans can. Music is about relationships, 
between sounds, between humans, between birds, and sometimes even between birds and humans. I want to talk to you about the project I'm developing here, A Morning Chorus, um, and I want to talk to you a little bit about our process, which I think is, is key to this connection between uh, us and nature, or fostering that idea of a connection. A Morning Chorus is an elegy to endangered songbirds, a lament for species permanently lost to us, an expression of mourning for our suffering planet. The work was composed through improvisations inspired by a number of North American songbirds. The vocalists trained in a range of traditions, including Georgian, Turkish, Anglo-Celtic, South Indian, Balkan, jazz, operatic, popular, overtone, and Inuit throat singing, and there's only seven of them, were asked to move beyond mimicking birdsong, but rather translate it through their own vocal cords, bodies, and musical intelligence, merging birdsong and human song, singing as an act of empathy. Embodiment and empathy as both, as both a working methodology and a philosophy formed the heart of our compositional approach. Our technique started by listening to a range of songbirds, actually slowing them down, analyzing the sound, and from there undertaking these improvisational experiments. The work to date that we're still finessing will be about 25 minutes, 20 to 25 minutes. Slowing down the song was key to our process. To bring the range of the pitch down to suit a human voice and to be able to hear the detail in these very complex songs, and then to translate them from a very small bird body into our large human bodies. It's also key to understand that songbirds perform very complex vocal gymnastics that we cannot. We have a single larynx through which we produce sound, while a songbird has a syrinx, which actually divides internally to allowing a songbird to make two completely distinct sounds simultaneously. And while our larynx sits here, the songbird sits much deeper in the chest. By embodying the sounds through their voices, through their translation of the bird's song, the vocalists are making a deep connection between the human bird, connecting versus separating our beings. In this gesture, we're seeking to express the need to recognize ourselves as part of the natural world rather than apart or separate from it. Now, I'd like to end with a quote by an environmental philosopher, and then I'm going to play a little clip of uh, the red crossbill, and so you can see this, the regular sound and the slowed down sound that we've been working with. Um, Val Plumwood said, Human-centered culture damages our ability to see ourselves as part of ecosystems and understand how nature supports our lives. So the resulting delusions of being ecologically invulnerable beyond animality and outside nature lead to the failure to understand our ecological identities and dependencies on nature. This failure lies behind many environmental catastrophes both human and non-human. So I'll let the bird have the last word.
That was uh, six of the seven amazing women I've been working with. Catherine Duncanson, Brenda McCrimmon, Suba Sankaran, Marie-José Chartier, Fides Kruker, and Laurel McDonald. And I'm sorry, Anne uh, Photo couldn't be here. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm not going to sing or whistle. I was practicing Lark in the Morning on my mandolin last night, but I'm not really up for performance. So, uh, And you should be grateful for that fact. Um, so I'm going, to t- uh, I'm going to read a little passage on the passenger pigeon. Uh, and this is, uh, comes from John James Audubon's monumental uh, Birds of America published in 1927. I dismounted, seated myself on an eminence, and began to work mark with my pencil, making a dot for every flock that passed. In a short time, finding the task which I had undertaken impracticable, as the birds poured in in countless multitudes, I rose, and counting the dots, then put down, found that 163 had been made in 21 minutes. I traveled on and still met more the farther I proceeded. The air was literally filled with pigeons. The light of noonday was obscured as by an eclipse. The dung fell in spots, not unlike melting flakes of snow. And the continued buzz of wings had a tendency to lull my senses to repose. Before sunset, I reached Louisville, distance from Hardensburg, 55 miles. The pigeons were still passing in undiminished numbers and continued to do so for three days in succession. The last passenger pigeon died at the Cincinnati Zoo in September of 1914, and her name was Martha. Uh, I'd like to welcome Bridget up to give us uh, some insight into the uh, uh, songbirds at risk and why they're at risk and, and what we understand and maybe we don't understand. Thanks, Bridget. question, the theme this evening is uh, how do we feel empathy for nature? And uh, we know that all around us many different types of animals are in severe decline. We're talking about uh, birds this evening. Uh, and how do, we f- how do we strike that balance between human needs and, and understanding what animals, and in this case birds, are all about? And I can look at this slide here and tell you, well, all four bird species that you see there are declining severely in Canada and indeed within North America. And we have the rose-breasted grosbeak, the barn swallow, olive-sided flycatcher, and the Canada warbler. And I can stand here as a scientist and tell you they're severely declining and on their way to that list of being species that are going to be extinct someday. But how well does that really resonate with everybody here? Uh, my book, Silence of the Songbirds, the title itself is kind of depressing, as is the empty nest that the publisher put on the, on the cover. <laughs> but but how, how does that really affect us emotionally? Do we really feel the kind of empathy that's needed to take the actions that are necessary uh, to save these species? Uh, every songbird, every species has a story to tell. Uh, And we really can't love or care about nature if we don't understand it in the first place. If we don't know something, if we don't know about an issue, 
Uh, we're not going to feel that empathy and that level of understanding. And so for the first part of my talk, I just want to kind of explain what migratory songbirds are all about and, and some of the stories behind them, um, because that leads us to, to being amazed about what these little creatures can do and the amazing journeys that they undertake every year. Uh, and that amazement and understanding of what their lives are about leads us into caring more about the fact that they're disappearing. Uh, so the, this is an oven bird shown here. And uh, the name comes uh, not from its song, but from its nest. It builds a nest on the ground uh, that's domed like this, and it looks like a pizza oven. And so the bird actually nests on the ground. It's very vulnerable to predators like chipmunks, uh, but that's where the name comes from. And I'm going to be brave <coughs> and imitate its song. You'll see, you'll see I chose this very carefully. Teacher, 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 teacher. I hope the ladies are impressed with that. <coughs> Thank you. <laughs> the oven bird is migratory. It, it, um, it breeds in southern Ontario and other areas. Um, but at the end of each summer, it migrates down to the Caribbean and Central America. So this tiny bird that's only about this big undergoes a journey that encompasses, for that individual bird, some 5,000 kilometers every single year. And the young birds that are hatched out of the nest make this journey for the first time with no help whatsoever. Their journey is genetically programmed, and they don't follow their parents down to the lees. They have a program in their brain and a compass in their brain that tells them where they should go, which is really uh, amazing that this is all built in. Well, we're going to look at the scale of bird migration. It's, it's hard to really comprehend just how many species and how many individuals are doing this. Uh, Canada's boreal forest is known as North America's bird nursery. There's some four to five billion songbirds that breed up there in the summer. And again, that number is hard to comprehend. I can stand here as a scientist and say three to five billion, but what does that really mean? And one way to capture this is through images. And the images I'm going to show you are from weather radar. It's the same radar that we use to look for storms in the summertime. And when you see those big red blotches uh, on the radar screen, you know a big thunderstorm is on the way. The weather radar is designed to detect rain droplets, water. And uh, birds' bodies, just like our bodies, are made up mostly of water. And so uh, the weatherman sees these enormous storms that sometimes are bird storms, they're bird bodies that are being detected. Most of these songbirds um, that I study, most of them uh, migrate at night. That's when it's cold and calm and ideal conditions for, for flying long distances. And so we can pick up on radar these massive migration movements that happen overnight when we're asleep. We have no idea that even here in Toronto, every spring and fall, millions of songbirds are passing by overhead uh, that if we could see them might conjure up the kind of amazement that Audubon had in his uh, writings about the passenger pigeon. So what we see on the radar right here, I just want to point out here, this is going to be spring migration that you're seeing. This is uh, 7.50 in the evening. And the radar station is based here in Buffalo. This is just ground clutter that we're seeing here. And the next slide shows sunset at 8.20, and we can time that because uh, the sun hits the uh, Doppler radar beam and makes a sort of baseball bat signature. What we can't see yet on the image is the tens of millions of songbirds that are still on the ground waiting for it to get dark. And when it does get dark, they take to the air 
where the radar beam uh, hits their bodies and sends back the image of a mass spring migration. These are all birds. And you can tell they're birds because you can see this leading edge that's going to move north across Lake Ontario and north across Lake Erie. This is 9.30 in the evening. Uh, the date here is in early May. There we are, halfway across the lake. By 11 o'clock, that wave has got all the way across. And this bird storm rages for hours. Imagine the millions of birds passing overhead. And who on the ground has any idea that this amazing natural phenomenon is taking place while they're watching their, their sitcoms or reality shows? <laughs> I should point out that uh, birds don't migrate in pancake-sized flocks, like we see here. It's just that the radar beam can only see so far. If we looked at the radar beam down here in Cleveland or over here in Rochester, we would see that the entire screen is bright red an amazing mass movement throughout eastern North America. And this storm rages on until the wee hours of the morning, and here we have sunrise showing the birds now, have, most of them have come down to the ground, and for those of us in the GTA, all these birds need to find a safe place to spend the day, to refuel. And for many of them, it means they're in um, our parks and our backyards uh, when they land in the city environment. So it gives us the opportunity to see these migratory birds uh, that are um, passing back and forth that we wouldn't ordinarily see in our backyards. So these birds undergo these incredible journeys, uh, keeping in mind how incredibly small they are and just how many miles and kilometers an individual bird puts on every single year. And when we think in terms of what's driving population declines, why are species declining? We need to look at this whole journey. So here's an example of a little songbird, a tiny one, only about 10 grams, the Wilson's warbler, that has a breeding range that covers most of the boreal forest here. Uh, and an individual bird, to make its journey down to Central America, of course, has to get back and forth. And so they might have a wonderful breeding habitat in the northern boreal, but they have to migrate through this region where they might encounter cities along the way, encounter deforestation along the Gulf Coast and other areas. These are places like the GTA where they have to stop and take a rest and yet the habitat's gone. And if they're lucky, they'll end up in the tropics in a nicely forested area. But even if the breeding grounds and the wintering grounds are still intact, it's the getting back and forth which may be the biggest challenge for these amazing travelers. So this, these radar images get a feel for the um, enormous scale of migration and what we're missing by being here on the ground and not really being able to see what, what's actually happening. Um, my, my lab has been doing research the last few years using tracking devices called geolocators that allow us to track the movement of an individual bird. People have been doing this for a long time with satellite transmitters, but the satellite transmitters are about the size of my fist bigger than some of the birds that we study. It's only recently uh, that we've had tracking devices that are tiny enough that we can put them onto the back of a songbird and figure out where individuals are going, how they're getting there, how fast they're flying, and really get an appreciation of this amazing journey at the level of that individual bird. Uh, here's an example from uh, the purple martin, uh, the first species that we tracked. 
And on its back right here is the geolocator. It's a little light sensing device. It's got a light sensor here and it collects and stores the data right here. Uh, for us to learn where the bird went, it has to come back the next uh, summer so that we can catch it and get the tracking device off and, and download those data. But this just gives you a, a, a feel for this amazing journey. These guys overwinter in South America. And here's an example of one of these migration journeys. So this, our study site is just south of Lake Erie where these birds um, breed. And they stay there till late summer, fattening up and getting ready for migration. And you can see a, a couple of amazing things that this bird did, did as we go through here. Uh, in blue is the fall migration. So the bird leaves on the 31st of August, comes down through the east coast, stops here on the Gulf, flies straight across the Gulf of Mexico, and within a week, by 5th of September, it's down here in the Yucatan. So this bird is traveling an enormous distance in less than a week. Purple martins are only this big. It's really incredible that they can go so fast. One of the other big surprises is after this amazingly fast sort of slingshot uh, migration down to Mexico, they stop and take a nice long vacation like some of us do in, in the winter months. <laughs> Uh, then the bird continues its journey. And one of the big surprises is that these purple martins overwinter in here, which is the Amazon rainforest. So here's the mouth of the Amazon, and the Amazon River comes through here. And we would always uh, consider purple martins to be species that were at really high risk of uh, living in habitats, uh, agricultural habitats that had lots of pesticides. Most of the agricultural production in Brazil is down here in southern Brazil. Uh, where we've gone and, and actually seen huge roosts and gatherings of purple martins. And, and, and even for somebody like myself who studied purple martins for decades, we always thought that the main wintering area was down here in southern Brazil where purple martins were living in cities, basically, and really at high risk. Instead, for the good news, we discovered that purple martins winter in the heart of the Amazon rainforest, one of the last truly wild places on the planet. In spring, the Martins raced back, left on the 12th of April, and was back by the 25th of April, which is less than two weeks to travel about 8,000 kilometers. Again, this broke all the speed records that we have for songbirds, and we just had no idea that these beautiful creatures, whether you're listening to them sing or looking at their beautiful colors, actually were capable of these uh, incredibly fast migrations. And you can imagine how having these kind of tracking devices tells us about the kinds of threats that they face along the way. We now know where they winter. We now know where they have to spend long periods of time on stopover. And we know their routes so we can look at the cities and habitats along the way. We've also been tracking wood thrushes, which are forest birds. Now, the wood thrush is one of those classic examples of a songbird in decline. If we look at uh, the data for, for wood thrushes, as you'll see in a minute, uh, they've declined by almost 50% just since I was born. Uh, it's really dramatic. So we're really interested in, in mapping out where they migrate to and, again, what kind of threats they face along the way. And we've done this for many populations of wood thrush across the range. And shown here is just kind of the standard kind of um, elliptical migration route that we find in wood thrushes. So from this uh, region, southern Ontario over here, wood thrushes typically go south along the east coast of the U.S. through Florida. They hop over to Cuba, 
and almost all of them overwinter here in eastern Nicaragua um, and eastern Honduras. They come back up to the Yucatan, cross the Gulf, and up the Mississippi Valley. What's underneath those arrows? Well, if you were to take a picture of the Earth from space at night, uh, the lights are our lights. So, when, so these birds are actually migrating over uh, intensely um, uh, industrialized and, uh, and urbanized habitats. If I go back just one slide, you'll see this is the kind of map that we usually show for migration, as though these birds are flying over these beautiful habitats all the way down and back again, right? They're usually the background is green. The reality, however, is that this is what the birds actually face when they're flying at night on their migration. Uh, and no wonder they have problems uh, getting there and back because uh, most of the time they're in suburban or urban habitats as they're migrating. We can look down here at their wintering grounds and say, well, we've now we know exactly where our wood thrush overwinter. Wood thrush from Canada winter in this region here, which you can see is one of the few dark regions on the map. So in a sense, you might think, oh, this is like Purple Martins. Maybe this is good news that the key wintering grounds for wood thrush, Canadian wood thrush, actually lie in a region that is heavily forested. And we know that because there's very few lights there. Well, you can probably guess that there's not a happy ending to this story because this is what's happening in this region here. It's a tropical deforestation hotspot. So the, the rate at which the forests are being cut down in eastern Nicaragua is amongst the highest on the planet. And our wood thrush really right now, unless we uh, find a way to, to slow that down, uh, are rather doomed. Well, again, going back to, to um, being a scientist and collecting data and looking for evidence, how do we know these birds are declining? There's been a lot of talk about declines. Um, well, we've been counting birds uh, since the 1960s through a number of, of ways, uh, very systematically, very uh, strict methods, et cetera. This one is the Breeding Birds Survey, which is a, a volunteer survey. Volunteers do this. And it goes back to the 1960s because Rachel Carson published her book, Silent Spring, in 1962, showing the link between pesticides and birds dying and declining, the proverbial canaries in the coal mine. So the Breeding Birds Survey was started in the 1960s as a continental health test, so to speak, of, of the health of birds. For each species, we can map uh, their progress, so to speak, or their demise. Here's the poor wood thrush that we've been talking about. The average number of birds per root has dropped by almost 50% uh, since 1965. Why? Well, one of the primary reasons is tropical deforestation, right? Uh, the bobolink is a, another example of a, a grassland bird, again, which has declined by about 50%. In this case, the cause is not tropical deforestation because they don't live in forests. Instead, researchers have shown that on their wintering grounds, these bobolinks live in rice fields that are heavily contaminated with pesticides, kind of like Silent Spring all over again. And even our boreal forest birds, the ones that live in the far north where there's still lots of intact forest, even many of our boreal forest birds are in steep decline. The olive-sided flycatcher and the Canada warbler are species at risk in Canada, both threatened species. The wood thrush is a threatened species. The bobolink is now a threatened species. They've declined so much over the last 30 or 40 years 
that now they're in that beginning category. They're on the road to extinction, which is really sad. But even looking at these graphs, I wonder how much data like these evoke the kind of empathy that we're looking for, that invoke the kind of empathy we see when we see a bird-human hybrid or when we hear wonderful people singing like birds. Does it really evoke those emotions that lead us to caring enough to change our actions? And I would say one of the, the reasons that, it's, um, that these sort of conservation issues are hard for people to appreciate is because we, we can look at the declines on the graph, but we can't actually see the suffering of birds. Suffering causes us to feel empathy. And the birds are suffering, but we can't see it. We can't experience it. And one way we can is when, uh, when birds are flying through cities, unfortunately, they collide by the millions uh, into buildings. And it's through this kind of image, I think, when we, when we see these amazing travelers interrupted in their journey through the tragic loss of flying into a window or building and, and having to recover the dead bodies, uh, really hits home just exactly what the challenges are for some of these species and, and what their future might be. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I started, the first bird I talked about, the great auk, uh, never existed in particularly large numbers. The last bird I'm going to read you a little bit about um, later also never existed in, in great numbers. But the passenger pigeon, as uh, Audubon uh, wrote about, existed in, in staggering numbers that really hard for us to imagine today what it must have been like because of the sheer you know, biomass passing over. Um, one, another bird that used to exist in fairly large numbers was the Carolina parakeet. Um, and this is from Audubon as well. I'm going to read you a short text about the Carolina parakeet now. These birds had the most northern range of any parrot and lived in huge, noisy flocks of as many t as two to three hundred birds. The last captive bird died at the Cincinnati Zoo. You may remember that from the last passenger pigeon on February the 21st, 1918. This was the male specimen called Incas who died within a year of his mate, Lady Jane. The evidence is rather conclusive that the extinction of the Carolina parakeet was by anthropogenic activity through a variety of means. Chief among them is deforestation in the 18th and 19th centuries. A significant role was hunting, both for their colorful feathers used to adorn women's hats and to reduce predation on southern crops. This was partially offset by recognition of their value in controlling invasive cockleburs. Minor roles were played by capture for the pet trade, and it was hypothesized by the introduction for crop pollination of European honeybees that competed for nest sites. A factor that exacerbated their decline to extinction was the unfortunate flocking behavior that led them to return to the vicinity of dead and dying birds. For example, birds down by hunting, enabling wholesale slaughter. I would like to introduce Mark Peck from the Royal Ontario Museum. And Mark is going to talk about the relationship between artists and the collections at the ROM. Thanks, Mark. 
my job. You can imagine me coming out on a Monday morning and working with a researcher like Bridget Stutchberry, and then Tuesday morning coming in and working with an artist like Sarah. It's, it's a real pleasure, and, and I get such a kick out of working with both. So why I would want to change that is beyond me. Anyway, um, I do want to talk a little bit more about art and the impact art can have on the environment and on people around us. I think this probably says it best. More and more people, especially children, are losing touch with nature and the outdoor world. And here is where birds can help. Because of their beauty, their daily evidence, and easy observance, birds are accessible to almost everyone. But we must do a better job of protecting them. And as you can see on this figure, we're not doing a great job. Uh, this is the state of Canada's birds in the last 40 years, an overall decline of over 12%, and especially in birds such as shorebirds, aerial insectivores, and grassland species, they're going down even further than that. So we must do a better job, and we must make people realize and empathize with the problems out there. Uh, it was easy for me to get immersed into birds. My father was a veterinarian by profession, but really had a love of birds his entire life and of bird photography. I grew up spending family vacations, traveling across North America to birding hotspots. Mum was thrilled. Um, three out of the four kids escaped and are still doing fine. I, however, was trapped. The appreciation of the outdoors, the challenge of finding the next bird or the next nest inspired me and now rules much of my life. It became a family trait. After I got married and had two lovely daughters, and once they were old enough, we gradually immersed them into the world of birds. Family vacations to mosquito-infested swamps, to the New Jersey shores, or as Georgia would say, to the Arctic so she could get pummeled by a Jaeger. The family was a little quirky, but the kids quickly and understand now the value of nature and appreciating the world around them. It's not as easy for everyone, and especially people in urban areas, to develop this appreciation. But as Bridget so honestly and hopefully said, unless we develop this empathy, we're going to be in some serious trouble. I work at the ROM, I work in the Ornithology Collections, uh, which is one of the largest collections, certainly the largest bird collection in Canada, 13th largest in the world, um, just a few blocks up. And yeah, I do welcome artists into the, uh, the collection in every opportunity. It is a scientific research collection. Much of it now, today, is looking at molecular research, so we're having scientists come in. They'll take a little bit of toe skin from some of our specimens, extract DNA from that, multiply it millions of times with the PCR machine, and then sequence those, that information. I'm still on the right page, right? Yeah, good. Um, however, that's just one small part of the collection. The collections belong to the people of Ontario. And that's all of the people, not just the scientists, but anyone who can use it. So if we can have students coming in to learn, so much the better.
as I said before, um, artists have always played an important and critical role in the success of the ornithology collections. Our ornithology gallery was partially funded through an art auction. Our two most valuable extinct species, the great auk and the Labrador duck, were essentially paid for by artist donations and other patrons of the collections. We have always opened our doors to artists and invited them to use the collections. Uh, I, we have animation and art students coming in three or four times a year. Uh, illustrators, wildlife illustrators dropping in to use the collections for reference, such as Barry Kent Mackay and the uh, Sandhill Crane you see before you. We regularly loan out birds to wood carvers some of them, the, the best in the world, like Gilles Prudhomme and his miniature sun bittern that he was producing. We have wildlife artists like Robert Bateman, the late Fenric Lansdowne and George McLean borrowing skins to ensure accuracy and develop greater emotion in their work. And some of the more interesting artists, the conceptual artists come in and it is such a pleasure to watch them walk around the collections and develop an idea or a concept and then work with that through it. Artists such as Catherine Widgery, who has distorted the man-made with the natural to question the order and reason that science continually strives for. Or Spring Hurlbut, who in her final sleep exhibit, blurring the distinction between science and art and questioning the immortality of life. And photographers like Deborah Samuels looking for beauty and bringing it alive in collection drawers that are filled with stuffed and dead specimens. Like Sarah's work, they have challenged the viewer, brought forth new ideas and different ways of looking at the world around them. They've all brought about a new way of looking at nature, and if these visions can provoke and inspire people to care more about the world around them, we're all better off for it. I would prefer not to add any more extinct species to our collection drawers, and I really do believe artists can play a very valuable role in making that happen. Thank you. Um, one of the most disturbing experiences I've ever had as an artist and a curator was being invited at the Manchester Museum to visit their cabinet of extinction, a little cabinet down in the basement. And it included one of the saddest objects I've ever seen, which was a death mask of a dodo. Um, uh, yes. And the Royal Ontario Museum has a very, you've got a, you have a dodo skeleton, right? Yeah. So I'm going to read you one more uh, short narrative. And this is, uh, again, comes from John James Audubon. And he... Uh, He's talking about the ivory-billed woodpecker. The ivory-billed woodpecker became extinct in the mid-20th uh, mid century. There's still some, occasionally there's people that surface and claim that they've seen them. It's highly unlikely that they still exist, um, probably as likely as there being a Loch Ness monster or a Sasquatch. And uh, so again, John James Audubon. The flight of this bird is graceful in the extreme, although seldom prolonged to more than a few hundred yards at a time, unless when it has to cross a large river, which it does in deep undulations. 
opening its wings at first to their full extent and nearly closing them to renew the propelling impulse. The transit from one tree to another, even should the distance be as much as 100 yards, is performed by a single sweep, and the bird appears as if merely swinging itself from the top of one tree to that of another, forming an elegantly curved line. At this moment, all the beauty of the plumage is exhibited and strikes the beholder with pleasure. It never utters any sound whilst on wing unless during the love season. I like that phrase. That's a very Audubon phrase, the love season. Um, But at all other times, no sooner has the bird alighted than its remarkable voice is heard. At utmost, every leap which it makes whilst ascending against the upper parts of the trunk of a tree or its highest branches. Its notes are clear, loud, and yet rather plaintive. They are heard at a considerable distance, perhaps half a mile, and resemble the false high note of a clarinet. They are usually repeated three times in succession and may be represented by the monosyllable pate, pate, pate. These are heard so frequently as to induce me to say that the bird spends few minutes of the day without uttering them. And this circumstance leads to, it, leads to its destruction, which is aimed at, not because, as supposed by some, this species is a destroyer of trees, but more because it is a beautiful bird and its rich scalp attached to the upper mandible forms an ornament often worn by, and this is period language, not mine, most of our Indians, or for the shot pouch of our squatters and hunters, by all of whom the bird is shot merely for the purpose of acquiring these beautiful decorations. Uh, I would like to have Matt Brower join us to speak about capturing birds through photography and the development of photography and ornithology. Thank you. Thank you. Um, this image is by uh, John Dylan Llewellyn. Uh, it's uh, Piscator number two from 1856. This is an image that he took at his estate in Wales of a stuffed heron uh, that he placed in, in the estate and uh, posed. Um, you can get a sense of it being stuffed uh, more easily looking at uh, this image, Deer Parking from 1952, where you, if you look across the chest of the deer and see how square it is, you can realize um, that he's working with dead animals. Uh, my immediate reaction when looking at this, and a lot of contemporary reaction when looking at these images, is to see them as fake wildlife photographs. That, of course, they couldn't take uh, real wildlife photographs at the time because the cameras were very slow. The heron image had a 26-minute exposure. Um, but in, in many ways, that's to impose our current ways of seeing the world back onto the past. So Llewellyn wasn't, in fact, trying to create a wildlife photograph because he lacked the concept of wildlife necessary to have the desire. Instead, he was trying to create a picturesque image in which the animals would act as accent pieces to highlight the sense of place. They also did not yet have a fully developed ecological consciousness, which would see the the existence of healthy animals as a sign of the health of the place, but instead saw the the spirit of the place being much more important than the animals. Uh, As uh, the 19th century went on, uh, people really 
started to press photographic technology in part because of their desire to photograph animals. While people in, the, in early portraiture were willing to sit for extended periods and have their head placed in clamps and um, held in place, animals, in particularly wild animals, weren't um, very interested in that. So uh, it, it's in fact the desire to capture animals that was one of the key drivers of the development of photographic technology. Uh, the most important example, of course, is Edward Muybridge's The Horse in Motion. Uh, this is a, a set of photographs that he started to make in the early um, 1870s at the behest of Leland Stanford. Um, Stanford was trying to solve a bet about whether or not the horse ever had all its feet off the ground. And so he hired uh, Moybridge to, to try and determine this. Uh, after several years of failure, uh, Moybridge designed this system in which the horse broke a series of tapes as it crossed uh, Stanford's racetrack in Palo Alto. And these images became a sensation and went around the world. What's really uh, key for me about them is the way in which they changed the way we see nature. And they're kind of, I think, key evidence for how photography has intervened in our relationship with the natural world. I'm going to show you another image. Um, this is Theodore Jericho's Epsom Derby from 1821. When this image was first exhibited in the salon, uh, the audience marveled at how it captured the thunderous movement of the horses along the racetrack and how there was an incredible sense of motion in this image. Uh, what's happened, I, I, does anyone actually experience that? <laughs> right, what's happened is that we've come to take the truth of the photograph in, in which this motion that we can't actually discern with our eyes has come to become the standard by which we understand and judge the, the, the motion of the animal. Now, Moybridge proved that these images were, in fact, the, the movement of the horse by essentially inventing the motion picture. So he, he put them on what he called a supraxiscope, rotated them around, and they, they recomposed into the actual motion of the animal. Photographing of animals in nature as a regular pastime only became possible towards the end of the 19th century, uh, in part because we needed to have fast lenses and we needed to have uh, cameras that could be easily carried into the woods. Um, but at the time still, most cameras had very short focal lengths. Um, Telephoto lens is invented around this time, but doesn't get into widespread use until the end of the 19th century. So in order to take a picture of an animal in nature, uh, it was required to bring the animal body and the camera into very close proximity. And to solve this problem, photographers started to use hunting techniques. So this is a photo by Alan Grant Wallahan, where he's chased a cougar down uh, until it's gone up a tree in order to photograph it. Uh, it's much more clearly seen in this photograph by him brought to bay from 1894 
in which we see his, the other hunter and the dogs that have chased down this elk in the background. Um, again, this is a very um, different photograph than what we normally imagine in terms of wildlife photography. In, in that it's, it's important for Wallahan that the figure is in the background because he's trying to assert that he's captured this animal, that his photography is in fact a form of hunting. Uh, this can also be seen in the work of uh, George Shiraz III. Uh, this is the first photograph he published in 1892 in Forest and Stream. Uh, he's again hunted this animal in order to take its photograph. Um, the photographers were really excited and they talked about their photography as a form of hunting and tried to find any way they could to get contact between animals and their cameras. So Shiraz adopted a poaching technique called jack lighting where you take a canoe out at night and shine a light into the animal's eyes in order to get it to freeze so he can photograph it. This is the kind of deer in the headlights thing. So. We can see this in uh, this image, image, Innocence Abroad, from 1896, where he came across a deer and uh, uh, two fawns at night. So these, these images of his are actually quite remarkable, um, and he exhibited them at a number of world's expositions and won a number of awards for them. Uh, he, he made a later series using uh, tripwires, which uh, shows the aftermath of these images. So we have the first flash at the top and the doubly interrupted meal at the bottom. So that while the images have this kind of uh, lucid quality to them, there's a kind of violence going on to the animals uh, in, in their being taken. Um, bird photographers were enormously inventive. Uh, perhaps the most inventive were a pair from England, Roger and Terry Kirton. Um, Here's their photographing a nest in a tree. Um, yeah, they've, they've climbed the top of the tree with a ladder in order to, to photograph birds. Uh, their, their most important contribution, though, to uh, photography was their work in developing the photo blind. Uh, here's a, a shot of a, a hunting blind, which is a hunting technology that they adapted. This is, in fact, in St. Kilda same place where the auk disappeared. And they adapted this, this structure of hiding behind a, a screen to uh, the use of photography. So at first, they just used a simple board in an attempt to, to photograph a kingfisher. And then later, they developed a whole series of very elaborate blinds in order to enable them to photograph animals, the most famous of which is this one there, a hollow cow. So, yeah, he, his brother fell over, couldn't get up, so he decided to photograph it instead of helping him out. Um, they also tell the story, of course, that at one point it attracted the unwanted attentions of a bull. Um, but, and and, and the, the reason behind the story is though, is not just to say, well, uh, kind of funny things happen, but to, to suggest that if it's fooling a bull, then it must be fooling birds. They don't realize that this, these are human beings. Uh, the most important, though, uh, blind that they developed for the development of photography was their artificial tree trunk, um, which is a move to a much less elaborate blind and which enabled them to have a more prolonged uh, 
observation of the birds. The next figure who was, was really key in the development of the blind and was key to bringing it into ornithology was Francis Herrick. Um, his uh, version of nature photography, though, was slightly different than ours in that he would cut the nest set of trees, put them on an observation site, and then set his, his blind up next to it in order to make observations. Um, however, while this is kind of a kind of interventionist model of photography, it did allow the production of unprecedented images of the daily life of birds. The contemporary model of the photo blind, though, was, was uh, formalized by a, a man named Frank Mitchler Chapman, who is the curator of birds at the American Museum of Natural History. He invented the habitat diorama and the Christmas count in ornithology. And he developed this very simple umbrella blind, um, which is the basis of most of the blinds currently in use. Um, he adapted the blind and came up with the idea of the blind as erasing human presence and then allowing us, therefore, unprecedented access to animals. Uh, and this can be seen in this image of his blind on a beach from his article, The Fishhawks of Gardner Island. And in, in this article, Chapman talks about the blind as a machine for erasing human presence, and the idea being that we gain access to the natural world by being, by being there as if we weren't there. So he talks about having a cooperator who goes into the blind and then leaves so that the birds believe that the blind is empty and that this allows them to, to be photographed as if there were no human presence there. So in other words, that we gain unprecedented access to the blind by having inscribed in the images a sense that there's an erasure. So the, the blind and ornithology have this complex relation. On the one hand, the blind and, and the development of photography was one of the key moments that allowed ornithology to move away from the shotgun. At the time when Chapman was writing, the slogan for his magazine, Bird Lore, was uh, what's shot's history, what's not's mystery. Um, yeah. Uh, and it's, it's encouraging to see that ornithology has changed from you know, shooting as much as possible in order to document to attempting to find ways to preserve and care for species. The other key moment in this is, of course, Roger Torrey Peterson and the development of Field Guide, which allowed for site records. Um, and those, those two things together transformed ornithology's relationship to birds and, and allowed them to participate much more in capturing birds' life as opposed to simply trying to capture the species. So, thank you. I'm going to uh, invite uh, panelists, everyone up, and uh, I'm going to I'm going to ask a couple of questions, but then we're going to open it up uh, to the floor. Oh, there is room for me. So thank you all for the nice mix of presentations. Um, I was interested that the blinds, I'm, 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 I was going to suggest to Terry Ryan, who does audience research at the AGO, that we may want to develop some blinds for the galleries for us to observe visitors. 
Um, and it was also like striking how similar these, the umbrella blind was to the blamage in the famous Monty Python skit, which I thought maybe <laughs> crossed over. Uh, but uh, I wanted to, uh, I had a question for, uh, for you, uh, Bridget, which was uh, something else uh, which I had read about to do with long grid migrations, which was one of the other things uh, impacting birds is the fact that with climate change, there's a timing issue that birds are wired to appear places at certain times and they change what they expect out there. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about that or tell me that I just made that up. No, that's exactly <coughs> right. And a lot of the, the research that I'm doing, in fact, is looking at these timing issues, uh, what controls the timing and whether or not uh, birds can adjust their spring migration according to what's happening on their breeding grounds. The example of the purple martin is, is the best one. Um, that one example I showed you, the purple martin's happily down in Brazil on the 12th of April and, and back on its breeding grounds in northern Pennsylvania by the 25th of April. So if you have a warm spring here, um, how are birds going to detect that it's even warm just two weeks earlier right. there in the tropics? Uh, in the warmest year on record, 2012, remember that spring? Yeah, especially after all the ice this year. Remember the spring of 2012, the warmest ever on record? Did Purple Martins leave Brazil earlier that year? No. Did they get back earlier? No. Complete mismatch between what's happening on the breeding grounds and uh, yeah. they're just not able to depart earlier. Um, and again, I'm just going to ask a couple questions because I want to get uh, uh, things out to the floor. But again, to both uh, Mark and Matt, I'm curious about, you, you both talked, like you showed images of you sitting amongst a phenomenal collection and you talk about photography and, and how it becomes a tool for replacing the gun. But like, when does that really happen, that transition? And how much, how much collecting of actual specimens is still, still part of the field? Well, that's kind of opening up a dangerous. Uh, Sorry, I don't a know. Dangerous you can cabinet, ask me a, a dangerous one about collecting. Fortunately, yeah. um, we actually do very little active collecting in ornithology uh, at the ROM anymore. Not that I'm necessarily against that, but most of the work we're doing now is related to more uh, misnetting or capturing birds, taking a blood sample, putting a band on, or putting a geolocator on, like like Bridget does and then releasing the birds back into the wild. So because of the, the advances in molecular techniques, it's very easy to, uh, to capture the birds and then release them again. However, at the same time, you know, in other collection areas like entomology, um, small mammals, they're still actively collecting. Unfortunately, also like Bridget said, we get about 2,500 birds a year in from the Fatal Light Awareness Program or the FLAP program. Um, so volunteers who are picking up dead or injured migratory birds in downtown Toronto from tower kills. So unfortunately, I'm still not short of, uh, of things to work on. Yeah, um, the transition really happens at the beginning of the 20th century uh, into the middle is when it really move to collecting seems to really drop. And is color photography a big factor in that shift as well? Because I assume part of it is like you don't get the plumage, you don't get... Um, it's, it's photography and then it's other technologies. It's the shift to radio telemetry and then other, other types of um, tracking technologies that really makes the difference. 
So one last question I'll put to everyone, and then uh, we'll, we'll sort of work the floor, is the idea of, it's, it's around the idea of beauty. Um, I was involved in a project a couple of years ago at the ROM that looked at declining biodiversity in the oceans, and one of the things we talked about a lot was how do you, how do you build empathy towards something that A, other people don't find beautiful, um, or they can't see. So maybe, I mean, it's open to any of you to really comment on in what you're seeing about around conservation and birds, where, where we might see examples of things just not on people's radar because they're just, gosh darn, not very attractive, or how the beauty of the bird actually builds a kind of attention to, to a kind of, in particular, certain areas, but not in others. Well, there's certainly a, a bias in the conservation world and for many organizations in uh, promoting the conservation of these charismatic species, you know, things like polar bears. Um, when I was introduced, uh, it was mentioned that I'm on the board of Wildlife Preservation Canada, which I'm really proud of because we're working to save the little guys, things like the rusty patch bumblebee and the oars kangaroo rat. So uh, these are really um, just like the migratory birds that we've been talking about. Uh, each one has an amazing story and, and has an amazing lifestyle, and we have a lot to learn from these little guys and um, all the same. I asked that partly because I remember reading an article once about with the decline of, of whales in the oceans that the snot flower worm, I don't know if you're familiar, anybody familiar We're with the snot flower worm? <laughs> Look it up, it's amazing. Um, but it, it sort of feeds on it, it sort of drifts, and it looks like a flower and stuff. Um, and feeds out the king whales. And like, it would be hard to launch a campaign to save. I mean, I'd like to take it on, but it would be hard to take on. So I'm. An I'm artist stop. could do it. Yes, so the next project for the next artist in residence. Um, so I'm going to come out with the microphone, and we're going to both sides. And so anybody with questions, um, uh, we're going to use the wireless chair. So. Yeah, we're down to one mic. But we, we can just do it. Yeah, okay. Questions? People are waiting. Hello. There we go. So, new doctor. Um, the uh, changes in the, um, in the magnetic uh, poles, which we're seeing a more and more dramatic drift of the magnetic poles every year, uh, is that having an effect on uh, the bird's internal uh, um, mechanisms to get down there and back? Well, it's possible. I think um, well, the question of how birds navigate is amazing. Uh, they have a, a kind of multi-system where uh, for many of the nocturnally migrating birds, they look at the stars as their main navigation tool. Uh, but you're right, they also have a magnetic compass in their head. Um, many of them also use landmarks. So for individuals that have already made the journey once before, so they have some personal experience, when they make that journey a second time, they literally recognize the land over which they're flying, and that can help them orient uh, as they're going. Uh, whether or not some of these journeys are thrown a little bit off course because of uh, changes in the magnetic fields, honestly, I don't think we know if that's happening or not. It's only recently we've been able to track uh, the migration of these small birds as individuals. That's a good question. Yep. 
thinking a lot of that is actually Canada goose and reintroduction of Canada geese and other waterfowl. So because of different mechanisms in, in farming and agriculture now, there's more and more food available in the wintering grounds and even in southern Ontario. Canada geese, I don't know if all of you know, but um, Canada geese used to be strictly migrants moving through Toronto. And back in about 1959, they introduced Canada geese uh, with the thought that it would be an interesting option for hunters down the road. What they failed to realize was Canada geese moved into the cities, did extremely well, and never left the city. So hunting was sort of limited in these areas. And uh, <laughs> now we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars or more uh, rounding up Canada geese or oiling eggs and, uh, and trying to control population matters. So Canada geese, snow geese have all done incredibly well in the last 20 years, and are, there's an exponential growth. But yeah, it's uh, probably short-lived. I think I might try to answer the, that last question because uh, I don't think uh, there is, uh, well, the most successful conservation of, uh, of birds, I think, in the world, if not in North America, if not in the world, is Ducks Unlimited, which uh, today collects more money for conservation in Canada than all the rest of the conservation organizations combined. Now, this is a very special case. Uh, perhaps their habitat, both nesting, but particularly their wintering habitat, has been uh, enhanced and, and saved by billion, literally billions of dollars put into marsh reclamation and that sort of thing. I don't know whether there's any message for songbirds in general from that, it's, it's hard to imagine how, but it is a, a great uh, uh, example of success. I'll just follow up briefly, and that is that, uh, you know, working with different conservation groups, it can be really frustrating that the uh, bird watchers don't have the same passion for saving their birds as the, the duck hunters. And it's true. And so Ducks Unlimited is a fabulous model, and you wonder why the millions of people who enjoy bird watching, um, you know, don't contribute more to conservation. And some of the conservation groups uh, actually run into trouble trying to, to motivate people to get involved and to donate, which is kind of ironic. Yeah, I would also say I think you're going to see more and more hunters and environmentalists actually going to have to work together to, uh, to develop this appreciation and further this appreciation with, with young people. So it's not us against them anymore. It's really everybody working together to uh, protect the environment the best way they can. Yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering about something that seems so obvious to me. Why buildings in the cities have to have their lights on at night, thus confusing the birds and causing all of this this carnage is does anyone know the answer to that I know people try you read about it every year saying you know turn your lights off don't leave them on it, I, I, it just seems to me to be incredible but that's a, a terrible loss to, for no to reason a, to a large extent the lights are left on purely for security reasons it's not that people are working all night necessarily I mean sure there's some offices where people are doing that but 
uh, on the large part, it's for security. And so the Lights Out campaigns have had big success in get, getting uh, buildings to turn down the lights during migration or off altogether, or to be uh, to use um, designs on outdoor lights that, that have uh, downward pointing lights as opposed to ones that are open on the top, and so that the light is pointing down where we need it to be on the ground as opposed to up to the sky. And so there have been some advances, I think, in trying to control the, the light pollution. But certainly when you look at those kinds of images that I showed you, uh, it's kind of a drop in the bucket in terms of what we've accomplished. Yeah, just following up on, on that, I'm wondering, uh, Bridget or, or Mark, if you know perhaps give us an idea of the success rate of the Fatal Light Attraction Program. Is this something that, in a city like Toronto, that we could galvanize local centers, school programs, or something like that to, to strengthen it, enlarge its impact? Sure. Uh, Fatal Light Awareness Program just celebrated, I think it was their 20th anniversary uh, last month. Uh, Michael Majeure, this has been really a strictly voluntary effort by some very dedicated people because, you know, if I asked anyone here in the audience to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, walk around downtown Toronto for some dead or injured birds, you might last a week. I tried it, I lasted two weeks and just about fell over at the end of it. It's, it's you know, great dedication that these people are doing and it's having a, a good effect. Toronto, I think, is one of the, the leading cities in, in Lights Out campaign. Um, they're looking at different window techniques to uh, the dull reflection in the window. So it's, it's coming a long way, and it's, it's doing well. Little question. Do, do those bird decals on windows work? No? Not, no. not really well. There's, there's the curator decals on windows? They work. <laughs> Not the bird ones. Yeah. You pretty much have to saturate your window with a with a deck. So you could you could put up uh, boxes or <laughs> curator <laughs> decals or anything. It doesn't really matter what the shape is. You're just trying to cover up the window as best you can. Yeah. And, uh, we just have one one more quick question. Uh, sure. No, they've been doing that for annually every year, and fortunately they've been doing it at the ROM, and I think it really does send a very strong message, and it's been picked up a lot by the newspapers and National Geographic, so yeah, kudos for them doing it. The toughest part of that is I have to hold those birds in the freezer for a year until they finish taking that picture, and then I can start to use them. So it's... Oh, good. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> So one, just, one more thing before we wrap up. Um, I want to ask uh, any of you to comment on where you see some successes in adaptation to, to cities. We've certainly seen it in other species like coy wolves and deer and raccoons that do well in the cities. I actually have this growing uh, population of turkey vultures that show up in my backyard. There used to be five. We had 36 last year. 
for about a month. They all live in the trees in my yard and freak out the dogs. So I'm just curious: are there, you know, are there are there examples of of uh, birds that that are that have adapted to the urban environment besides maybe pigeons? But yeah, there, there's plenty of birds that are, you know, things like robins and goldfinches and juncos that we see regularly in our backyards. Uh, even during migration, you know, our boreal forest birds that are born and hatched in a big wilderness up north, they have no choice but to pass through our city, as I showed on the radar. Uh, and certainly, uh, although they can't adapt to our city, we can adapt to them and provide bird-friendly habitats in our yards for them. Just maybe not turkey vultures. Like, it's pretty serious evidence. Mm-hmm. Birds, well, they I wouldn't say wings, what I was going to say. Yeah, if you, if you wanted to attract turkey vultures, I'll let you know how. Yeah. <laughs> We've already got it covered, apparently. <laughs> I'm not sure what we're doing. So I want to thank Matt and Mark and Sarah and Bridget for, I uh, hope what you found was a really interesting evening uh, and look forward to seeing you all again at the AGO in the near future. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at agonet slash talks.